Welcome back to Zion's Redemption Radio Network. Today we'll be covering chapter 10 of As It Is Translated Correctly, pages 146 to 173. The title of the chapter is Joseph's Inspired Translation. We'll dedicate the program and get right into the reading. Our Father in Heaven, we thank Thee, Father, for the atonement of Thy Son, Jesus Christ, for the prophets who have willingly given their time and efforts up unto Thee to, make, uh, to deliver the messages of the Scriptures that have been passed on to us, even though they did it with the threat of their lives in many times and persecution from the wicked. We ask the Father to bless them as we bless you for their efforts and for your effort in sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to be the greatest prophet, to be the Redeemer of the world. We ask thee, Father, for thy blessings to be upon us as we endeavor in this study of the inspired translation brought forth by the prophet Joseph Smith. We love thee, Father, and we love thy Son, Jesus Christ, and we love the many prophets who have served thee throughout the years. We ask the blessings to be upon all those who hear these, these words, that thy spirit would be there to guide them, that we might be tools in thine hand to bring forth science redemption. We thank thee for all of our many blessings, and we say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Joseph's Inspired Translation, Chapter 10 of As It Is Translated Correctly, pages 146 to 143. Now, on the reader program, this is a 47-minute reading, uh, which actually the reader program reads a lot faster than I read. So this is probably going to be broken up into two episodes, but I'll try to get through it all. We'll see what happens. I resumed the translation of the scriptures and continued to labor in this branch of my calling. Doctrinal History of the Church, Volume 1, page 238. That was Joseph Smith. For many centuries, uninspired men have fractured Christianity into a thousand different contending sects. And from out of all these have come many different versions of the Bible. Because of this confusion, the Lord saw the necessity of bringing more enlightenment among men to clarify the atrocious mess. And remember, these men who did these uh, these translations, they were not prophets. They would take words um, or a string of words in Hebrew and try to translate them into something that people in other languages could understand. Um, but even when they translated as correctly as they could, um, it depends on how long into the, or how late into the translations and the copies they were making, because like scribes would would put notes in 
and then like sometimes uh, scribes later on down the road would put those notes straight into the scriptures. Um, so it depended on which manuscript you were translating from. And the reason they would um, they would take these manuscripts and they would uh, either translate them or write them out again because uh, the manuscripts are written on perishable valor uh, or uh, papyra or something to that effect. Even sometimes um, metal scriptures, which we find in many different places around the world, uh, including the copper scrolls uh, found in, in the Dead Sea, uh, which had the writings of Isaiah on them. Um, but they, uh, these perishable uh, scrolls and manuscripts would wear out over time and they would have to go in and re-scribe re, uh, them and um, and retranslate them or translate them into other languages as well. Anyway, so we've got a long history of, of these um, translations going on throughout the years and, and sometimes it was like the telephone game where they would... Uh, write the oral history down but the oral history had been passed on um, from person to person and then when they write it down like is that really what the original uh, prophet stated Um, so anyway continuing on with the reading since the problems had not been solved by the scholarship of men it became necessary for the Lord to send a prophet so he did the prophet Joseph Smith. One of Joseph Smith's first works was of a more inspired translation of the Bible. And just remember, Joseph did not um, get into every every detail. Like he could have spent a lot more time on this, but he did finish it. And we'll talk about that later on. Most scholars and translators realized the problems of trying to get an authentic copy of the Bible from the manuscripts that were available for translation. A statement from those who worked on the English Revised Version admitted, quote, We recognized from the first the responsibility of the undertaking and through our manifold experience of its abounding difficulties, We have felt more and more as we went onward that such a work can never be accomplished by the organized efforts of scholarship and criticism, unless uh, assisted by divine help. So they needed a prophet to actually help them uh, in the translations of these manuscripts. And that's a preface to the English Revised Version, page 22. We're on page 47 at 3%. It is evident that some Bible translators received more divine help or inspiration than others, and it should be no great surprise that the prophet Joseph Smith should receive more than all others, seeing as how he is a true prophet. When the prophet Joseph Smith was only 20 years old, he understood the adverse effects mortal man had on the Bible translations. From the Book of Mormon, he read about the incomplete, incompleteness and the inaccuracies of the Bible and why these conditions had occurred. And I'll read that quote in a minute. Um, 
I find it interesting that God hid the Book of Mormon in the ground for a time when it would come forth in the future. And I think part of the reason he did that was, well, for one, the Gentiles hadn't, had not arrived on this uh, utmost bound of the everlasting hills of North America when uh, Moroni abridged the work that Mormon had, all of the, the different books, and he, he went through and abridged them. But also, he was able to keep it out of the hands of so-called scholars that bring in their own biases and their own um, mistranslations and their own um, all the mess that they, they have created. And he hid it in the ground so they could not mess with them. Now, I think the same type of thing was done with the Dead Sea Scrolls, but we see that with the Dead Sea Scrolls, that scholars and academics and religious leaders from certain churches have hidden the majority of the Dead Sea Scrolls so they cannot be translated or read. And I think that they already have been translated personally, but the reason they don't want to release these things is because they realize that the narrative that they have configured within these many different churches and organizations does not go along with what they found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they do not want to allow those things to come forth, so they've hidden them. But with the Book of Mormon, he gave it straight to a prophet and commanded a prophet to to translate it, and then to do a translation of the Bible. And I believe he did this so that it would not be tampered with. Now, since the 1830s and 40s, when these things were um, being uh, translated or whatever, in 1920 or 1820s, hold on, Arius, my four-year-old son is up. I need you to be quiet while I do this recording, okay? Okay. <coughs> anyway, um, but we can go back and look at um, uh, records in teachings from the uh, from the Church of Joseph Smith's time um, and see the differences. Um, but a lot of people they don't want to do stuff like that, so they just take face value. And don't even realize the changes from the manuscript that Joseph Smith wrote to what we have in the different um, uh, Bible and Book of Mormon translations today. Um, but it's easy, it's easier for those who are interested in the truth to go back and find those things. But it's not so easy with the Bible because it's been tampered with for so many years, for thousands of years. Going back to King Josiah and his tampering with the uh, the book of the law of the Lord, uh, adding and subtracting things from the Torah, which is why um, there were so many prophets who God sent before the Babylonian captivity because because of the we- the wickedness of King Josiah and his high priests in doing the things that they had done, and God was going to destroy them. Yeah, which he did. He like let Jerusalem go into captivity. He let the the wicked uh, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon 
come in and destroy everything and take them slaves. Um, he allowed the Assyrians to come in and to take them slaves of the northern kingdom because this was widespread corruption among among the uh, branch, branches of, of Israel and Judaism. So anyway, uh, but let's get into this uh, this quote here. For behold, they have taken away the gospel of the Lamb, many parts which are plain and most precious, and also many covenants of the Lord have been taken away. And all this have they done, that they might pervert the right ways of the Lord, that they might blind the eyes and harden the hearts of men. Wherefore, thou seest that after the book had gone forth through the hands of the great and abominable church, which is the uh, church that hijacked hijacked original Christianity, um, they took a, a Jewish Messiah named Yeshua and they turned him into a Roman prophet named Jesus or Jesus. Uh, and they they altered many things um, was they made it the state religion after the persecutions basically they decided if they couldn't destroy the Christians that they were going to hijack them which that is what they did and we've got a lot of uh, churches out there that are going on uh, information that they're getting through these manuscripts and translations, which was tampered with by the Romans before um, before they could see the light of day. And then you've got the, the King Josiah stuff that happened um, six or 700 years before Christ that was really, uh, that really messed up a bunch of stuff as well. Anyway, wherefore thou seest that after the book had gone forth through the hands of the great and abominable, abominable church, that there are many plain and precious things taken away from the book, which is the book of the Lamb of God. And after these plain and precious things were taken away, it goeth forth unto all the nations of the Gentiles. And that's First Nephi in the Book of Mormon, chapter 3, verse 68 through 72. And that was a prophet talking about what was going to happen in the future from his time. But... At the same time, it had already happened in the past from his time because of what King Josiah did before Nephi and Lehi were born. Um, Lehi may have been alive during the reign of King Josiah, um, but by the time um, the captivity came around, King Josiah had been killed by King Nebo of Egypt and with the spear through his neck. Uh, well into his neck, down into his chest cavity. And um, the corruption which he brought forth was already in full effect among the Jews of that day and age. So anyway, um, it was clear to the prophet what had happened to those ancient manuscripts. And he commented, quote, from sundry revelations which have been received, it was apparent that many important points touching the salvation of men had been taken from the Bible or lost before it was compiled. 
Doctrinal History of the Church, Volume 1, page 244, and that was Joseph Smith. Because so many uninspired translators had made errors in their work of copying or translating, the Bible had lost some of its original scriptures and books, which we've gone over in this book so far. The prophet clearly indicated that it was the work of man, not the original prophets, who had made the blunders, said he in one page 148, if you're following along at 7%. I believe the Bible, as it read, read when it came from the pen of the original writers, ignorant translators, careless transcribers, or designing and corrupt priests have committed many errors. And that's Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, page 327. To correct many of these past errors, the prophet was told to begin the work of correction and restoration of much of what had been lost. The Lord revealed to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery, quote, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that there are records which contain much of my gospel, which have been kept back because of the wickedness of the people. And now I command you that if you had good desires, a desire to lay up treasures for yourself in heaven, then shall you assist in bringing to light with your gift those parts of my scriptures which have been hidden because of iniquity. Doctrinal, I'm sorry, Doctrine and Covenants, section 6, verse 26 and 27. Not only did Joseph learn that the Bible had undergone some inadequate translations and that certain books and passages of Scripture had been completely lost, but he was instructed that much of it would be uh, restored. But not all of it, just much of it. Quote, the Gentiles do stumble exceedingly because of the most plain and precious parts of the Lamb, of the gospel of the Lamb, which have been kept back by the abominable church, and that's the church of Rome, the hijacked early Christianity, which is the mother of harlots, saith the Lamb. I will be merciful unto the Gentiles in that day, insomuch that I will bring forth unto them in mine own power much of my gospel, not all of it, much of my gospel, which shall be plain and precious, saith the Lamb. First Nephi in the Book of Mormon, chapter 13, verse 34. And after it had come forth unto them, I beheld other books, which came forth by the power of of the Lamb from the Gentiles unto them, unto the convincing of the Gentiles and the remnant of the the seed of my brethren. And we're on page 149 at 11%. And also the Jews who were scattered upon all the face of the earth, that the records of the prophets and of the 12 apostles of the Lamb are true. The angel spake unto me, saying, These last records, which thou hast seen among the Gentiles, shall establish the truth of the first, which are of the twelve apostles of the Lamb, 
and shall make known the plain and precious things which have been taken away from them. And that's First Nephi in the Book of Mormon, chapter 13, verse 39 through 40. Now, if you don't have a Book of Mormon, you can get on LDS.org on the internet and order one, and it can be uh, shipped to you free of, free of uh, charge. Also, there's a LDS scripture app that you can go and read these things on if you have access to, um, to the internet or a smartphone. In a revelation from the Lord to Oliver Cowdery, the Lord gave a startling bit of information concerning ancient records. Quote, Behold, other records have I that I will give unto you that you may assist to translate. Doctrine and Covenants, section 9, verse 2. In 1830, some of the visions of Moses were revealed to the young prophet Joseph, which were classed among those in the status of new scripture. But more interesting was the passage of the book of Moses that promised additional new scripture to be given. Quote, And now Moses, my son, I will speak unto thee concerning this earth upon which thou standest. And I shall write the things which I shall, and thou shall write the things which I shall speak. And in a day when the children of men shall esteem my words as, as not, and take many, and take many of them from the books which thou shalt write, behold, I will raise up another like unto thee, and they shall be had again among the children of men, among as many as shall believe. Moses chapter one, verses forty through forty-one, and that's in the Pearl of Great Price. If you look on LDS.org. On the scripture, LDS scripture app, you can read those things there. That's uh, in the Pearl of Great Price. And the book is Moses chapter 1, verse 40 and 41. See, there were a lot of things lost or intentionally disregarded from the original records because of what King Josiah did. And I know the Jews and many people think that King Josiah was a great prophet, but, you know, history is written by the victor. He was not as great as people think he was. He reformed a lot of things, but he reformed them with corruption and lies, which the people did not understand. But the people at the School of the Prophets, people like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, um, and Lehi and others, they understood. That's why they were preaching so much in the streets of Jerusalem. That's one of the reasons they were preaching so much, because they had the original records that they had kept. And they realized that King Josiah and his councils had done a great and abominable thing in taking many plain and precious things out, and they were not restored until... Joseph Smith and the Latter-day Restoration, which is a time of preparation for God to to gather in the wheat, to gather in all of his holy fish, <laughs> you know, fishers of men, and then he gathers them into these restoration churches. 
and then in the very end days, um, he would send his hunters out to gather the remnant or the elect of the elect, the obedient elect to bring forth these things in their fullness. Anyway, so the Lord required Joseph to restore not only the Book of Mormon, but also other scriptures and to make some revisions in the Bible. His work on the Holy Scriptures was often called the inspired translation or the inspired revision. We're on page 150 at 15%. Regarding Joseph's work with the Bible Scriptures, the term translation is probably a misnomer, for his work was closer to a revision. Notations were made in the large edition of the King James Bible, and rather than actually translating from ancient manuscripts, yet it was a work assisted by inspiration and revelation. The Lord once said, quote, Thou shalt ask, thou shalt ask, and my scriptures shall be given as I have appointed, until you have received them in full. Doctrine and Covenants, section 42, verse 56 and 57. And just so those of you who are not familiar with these things, um, the Doctrine and Covenants is a compilation of revelations received by the prophet Joseph Smith and others. Uh, The different branches of the Restoration have different Doctrine and Covenants. Um, some of them have more revelation uh, than others. Um, but I'd have to take into consideration the fact that the church was rejected in 1843. The revelation given on January 18, 1841, which in the LDS version of the Doctrine and Covenants, the section 124, Jesus told them to build this temple whereby the Most High can come dwell therein, that he, not Jesus, might restore that which was lost unto you or that which was taken away, even the fullness of the priesthood. Uh, He later says, Jesus later says to Joseph, if you do these things, I will restore a whole bunch. There's a lot of things that he's going to restore. He says this will be the beginning of Revelations. And I believe that um, that was the rest are uh, the revelations that would have brought forth the redemption of Zion, uh, that he would restore the times and seasons, which in Hebrew is the Moedim or the holy days of Jehovah. Um, he would restore many, many things and that never happened. He also said, if you do not do these things that I have commanded you, you shall be rejected as a church with your dead. And he says, if, um, how does he put it? That if they were obedient, that he would fight, that he, Jesus Christ, would fight their battles for them and they should not be removed from their place. But instead of receiving all these new revelations and instructions and the restoration of the times and seasons or the holy days of Jehovah, which are called the Moedim, none of that ever happened. The temple in Nauvoo was never finished. The Father never came to restore the fullness of the priesthood back to the saints at that time. Jesus never came to that temple, and no angels ever came to that temple. The endowment of power 
which was supposed to be um, given in that temple by the Father himself for the Most High. That never happened. Later, Brigham Young, realizing these discrepancies, decided to lie about receiving the fullness of the priesthood in the red brick store. But Jesus said that the Father had to do it in the temple, not the red brick store. So instead of fighting their battles where they would not be removed from Nauvoo, he did not fight their battles and he let them go into the wilderness because of their wickedness. Many thousands were martyred or they died in the trek to Salt Lake to go into the wilderness. Great cursings instead of blessings were what Jesus said would happen if they were disobedient. And that is exactly what happened. And in fact, Lyman White wrote down in his journal that Joseph Smith stated in 1843 that the church was at a lost and fallen state and they had been rejected. Later on, God took Joseph, the prophet, and his brother Hiram, the the patriarch, away from the church when they were murdered in Carthage, Illinois. God did not fight their battles for them, and they were left without a leader from 1844 to 1847 when uh, when Brigham Young decided that he was going to be the leader of the church. And then Sidney Rigdon came in, um, several others came in, and they tried to say that they should be the leader of the church. It was not done by revelation. And the, the people in the Brighamite branch of the Restoration will say, well, Brigham was transfigured, and he looked like Joseph Smith, and he even had the lisp, because Joseph Smith had had part of his teeth knocked out, and he had a lisp after that, because he was beat up by the, the, the Protestant mobs. And they said that Brigham Young even had the lisp when he was speaking to the congregation, trying to tell them, you know, I should be your leader. But the only problem with that is there are no contemporary journal writings of that event happening, and they do not get recorded down for 20 years in people's journals. And people wrote about it in their journals who were on missions to England, saying that they were there at that time and that they heard it happen. But we have evidence that they were in England and Europe on missions when that happened and could not have could not have heard Brigham Young or seen the so-called transfiguration because they weren't even there. Robert Matthews commented on the above scripture when he stated, quote, the phrases thou shalt ask or shall be given, and until you have received, are informative and suggestive, uh, suggest the matter in which the prophet was to proceed with the task. Apparently the prophet did not always know beforehand what changes were needed, nor what to expect. For on occasion he expressed surprise at what was given him, And that comes from um, the book by Robert J. Matthews, who is a great professor of theology at BYU. And he wrote this book, A Look at Joseph Smith's Translation, page 5. 
There was a difference between Joseph Smith's work on the Bible and that of other translators. Joseph had been directed by the Lord to do it and was also given the inspiration and revelation to make that revision. Joseph once wrote, while we were doing the work of translation, which the Lord had appointed unto us, Doctrine and Covenants, section 76, verse 15, Joseph gave more veracity to that work than the hundreds of scholars who had approached it with only their own learning. See, they were not prophets. They were just scholars. The apostle Orson Pratt also acknowledged, the Lord commanded Joseph Smith to make a new translation of the Old and New Testaments. And that can be found in the Journal of Discourses in the Bergamite Branch of the Restoration, volume 15, page 247. Joseph's Bible revisions did not start at the beginning of the Bible and continue through to the end, as many suppose. The work did start with the beginning of the Old Testament, but it was a mammoth project and much of the material was long and tedious. So the Lord instructed Joseph to start on the New Testament, or on page 151 of As It Is Translated Correctly at 19%. Quote, And now behold, I say unto you, it shall not be given unto you to know any further concerning this chapter until the New Testament be translated. And in it, all these things shall be made known. Wherefore, I give unto you that that ye may now translate it, meaning the, the New Testament, that ye may be prepared for the things to come. Doctrine and Covenants, section 45, verses 61, or 60 and 61. As the work of the New Tra- uh, Testament was progressing, and Joseph, and, uh, Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon were in the tr- uh, translating the book of John, they were given a vision, quote, For while we were doing the work of translation, for oh, I'm sorry, for while we were doing the work of translation which the Lord had appointed unto us, we came to the 29th verse in the 5th chapter of John, Doctrine and Covenants, section 76, verse 15. They inquired about the resurrection of the dead, and the Lord gave one of the greatest revelations ever given to men concerning life after death. See Doctrine and Covenants, section 76. And like I said, you can go read that section 76 on the internet by going to lds.org or going to the LDS Scripture app, going to the Doctrine and Covenants, and then choosing section 76 and just reading that. It's fascinating. It's so cool. And like some of the stuff that is in it, like there's things in the New Testament which allude to it, but because of many of the most plain and precious things had been lost, people don't know what to make of these things. And they've got all kinds of of um, interpretations which unlearned or even learned men who have no inspiration They're like, oh, this must mean this. And they'll speak with authority. And I've heard so many pastors do this who are living and some who are are dead. Oh, they, they know exactly what this means. And they don't know it all. They have no inspiration, but they act like they do. 
And as I've said many times in the past, the interpretation of Scripture does not belong to men, but it belongs to God. And in order for someone to receive the correct interpretation of Scripture, you must be a prophet or you must have learned it by a prophet and then received a confirmation of the Holy Ghost that your own interpretation about what the prophet and the Scripture states is true. And if it's not true, the Spirit will withdraw from you. And if it is true, the Spirit will increase within you and you will feel the burning in the bosom or you will feel the fruit of the Spirit, which is peace and joy and love and these type of things. Um, However, there is a third way, uh, a third answer that can be given, and that's the answer of silence. And when you receive the answer of silence, it means that you have to study it out more in your mind and come to a conclusion as, as to what you believe it is speaking and then go back to the Lord with added study, prayer, pondering, and inspiration. And go back to God and say, okay, I've, I've read this. I've studied this out more fully. This is what I believe it's saying. If you do that, then eventually you're going to come to the right conclusion. And sometimes, like with myself as an example, I came to a conclusion about something that I had been uh, pondering over for many uh, for many years and um, praying on and studying this certain topic. And when I finally came to the conclusion about what I thought it meant, and I took it to the Father in the name of Jesus Christ in prayer, the Spirit did withdraw from me, and I was left to the buffetings of Satan, which is the exact opposite of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So the the Holy Spirit would be love and peace and joy and these type of things. The fruit of the adversary is depression and sadness and anger and spite and short-temperedness and these type of things. When I realized that the Spirit had withdrawn from me and I was left to the buffetings of Satan, I went back to the Father and I said, Heavenly Father, I realized that the scriptures and the interpretations that I had were false doctrine and they were wrong. And I turn away from those things and I repent and I ask you to that I might have thy Spirit to be with me again. And you know what happened? The Spirit increased within me and I felt that. Um, I felt that very strongly. And then I went back to the Father and I said, Heavenly Father, I have researched these things. I've pondered over them and I came to a, a wrong conclusion. Please help me understand these things. And you know what happened? He gave me revelation in my mind. Not an audible voice or a vision, although I've had those things happen many times in my past. But he gave me revelation in my mind. And I took that revelation and I went back to him and I said, is this correct? Is this a correct interpretation? And the spirit increased in me a lot. And I knew that what I had received was true. And that I now had the correct interpretation of the scriptures that I was trying to understand. See, this is a, a communication between the father and you. And the thing is that you can be inspired from the Spirit, 
but the adversary doesn't want you to understand these things either. He's whispering into your ears and he is trying to get you off course so that false doctrine can be spread. And if you will continue to go to God and you will know the difference between the buffetings of Satan and the fruit of the Spirit and Revelation, with the time of communication, pondering prayer, um, study, you will come to the correct conclusion. And if you don't do it by your own logic, with, with inspiration, and you prove yourself worthy to God, that you are, are sincere in your study, he will bring forth the truth unto you by his own voice. And I can testify that I know these things because of the experiences that I have had personally. And that as I have done this over the years, he has given me so many uh, corrections on interpretations, revelations, visions, inspiration, and I've even spoken with him face to face and heard his own voice. Because I went down that path and I clung to his word, the word of God, and not to my own interpretations or reading books of dead prophets who are men on the earth who we often misinterpret. And without the, the revelations of the Holy Spirit to guide you so that you can know the only interpretation that matters, which is the interpretations of the Father, whose interpretations it is, he owns them, that without doing those things, you will be lost in the darkness. That's why Nephi, when he was going in, um, on the path to the Tree of Life, when he started following the religious minister, he went into the darkness and found himself lost in the darkness. It wasn't until he turned back to God that he found his way back to the iron rod, which is the word of God, and found his way to the tree of life. The scriptures tell us it is that cursed are all they who trust in the flesh. Now I have news for you. Jesus Christ was in the flesh. Peter, James, and John were in the flesh. Jeremiah, Moses, Ezekiel, and even Adam were in the flesh. Without going to the Father to receive revelation and inspiration to know the truth, just hearing the words of Jesus Christ in the Bible itself is not going to save you. Jesus will eventually say to these uh, men and women who come to him, saying, Have not we done many great works in thy name? And he'll say, Depart from me. You never knew me. You never knew me. Because they never went to get revelation and uh, find inspiration and find the true interpretation of Scripture. They just trusted in the words from a book without seeking out revelation and confirmation of the Holy Spirit. 
they trusted in their ministers past and present to teach them the words of the book without revelation from God. And this is how false doctrines promulgate themselves within all churches. God said that the whole world in the last days would be full of gross darkness and error. And the reason we have this is because people will listen to their ministers and their prophets and their apostles and trust in the leaders who are men in the flesh instead of getting revelation for themselves. Only those who are sifted away from the chaff, who are the remnant of God, those are the ones who have taken the time and the effort to receive the truth by revelation and inspiration and confirmation of the Holy Spirit. Continuing in my reading here, Okay, sorry, I had to cough. <laughs> this demonstrates the clarification of the scriptures by the Lord as Joseph worked on the revision. No other translators ever claimed such inspired help with all of their various Bibles. The book of Bereshit, or Genesis, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and the first portions of John were written out by hand, because so much information was given in them. For Joseph to write out all of the rest of the Bible was not necessary and was too time-consuming. The book of Esther, Ecclesiastes, and the first and second epistles of John had little to no changes in them. The book of the Song of Solomon was discarded completely and declared to be uninspired. Real quick, so... After my mission, um, I only served for about a year. Um, I was re- was really successful in my mission, but I was so sick. And I was deaf for part of my mission, like almost completely deaf. And eventually they had to send me home on medical leave um, until I could get better. And because I was not able to get better in the time uh, requirements that my mother had placed on me, uh, which was only 30 days, um, with the doctors, they didn't release me. Um, the doctors didn't release me because I was still sick. And my mom kicked me out. And then um, <laughs> I had to go live with my sisters. And then eventually I got a job. And then uh, and then that same year I became an over-the-road truck driver because I had a CDL before my mission. And um, it's kind of funny because like while I was home, my stepbrother, who was older than me, I think he was 25 when he decided to be a missionary, he went to um, Chile. And I can't remember exactly where he went, Concepcion or something like that. Um, he actually came, and my, I remember my stepdad telling me, oh, he's better than you. He's not going to come back off his mission. Uh, just because he was a little sick. And, like, I was really sick. They sent me home. Like, I had a bunch of medical bills. I was deaf for a large part of the first part of my mission. I couldn't even, I couldn't read lips. I couldn't even hear myself talk. It was not 
it was not ideal, but I really tried and I started suffering depression because I was sick and I was like, I told God I would serve him for the rest of my life if he would show me the truth, which he did in 96. And so um, battling all these things I had to battle, um, I, I went home early and then I, and the state president had to release me because nobody would help me. Um, and my mom was going to kick me out and it was just a bad situation. So I was very upset about that. So I became very, because of my guilt, very engrossed in the scriptures and the history of the church and anything I could read. And I lived in my semi-truck and I would go back and visit um, Salt Lake City, Utah every two or three months as a truck driver. But for the most part, I lived in my semi-truck and I had a lot of fun doing that. Um, I had a lot of fun doing that because I was able to travel and I was able to go to all these cities and like whenever I had time off, like which is every two weeks, I would get like two days off if I wanted to take them. And I would try to go to like New York City or to Boston or to Chicago or different places throughout North America just so I'd go visit and go see the museums and and the attractions and stuff. Um, but for the most part, like I would be just traveling as a truck driver. And there were times when I was stuck in docks getting loaded or unloaded, or I was waiting for a load that didn't deliver for a day or two. Um, and I would take that time to read a lot and also to proselyte and go among the truck drivers and talk to them. And I would even go to churches that I could walk to that were like a mile or two from where I was able to park my truck. And I would just walk with my scripture bag and I'd go into these churches. And then I also would call the LDS uh, secretaries before church would start and say, hey, I'm at this truck stop. I'd like to attend church today. Can somebody come pick me up? And like they almost always would come pick me up, which was nice because I was able to go to these different LDS congregations all around North America. And then many times they'd say, hey, um, like when do you have to be back to your truck? And I'd be like, oh, I don't have to pick up till tomorrow or whatever. Because usually, you know, Sunday and then you pick up on Monday when the warehouse is open. And they would take me home and they would feed me. And I got to meet so many really cool people doing that. But even while I was on the road, I had all of the um, all the scriptures on audio cassette. I had all of the general conferences going back to, I think, 1970 or 1972 on tape all the way to uh, the present time which would have been in the early 2000s when I was on the road. And I would get, um, oh man, I had so much stuff. I didn't have anywhere to live. Um, I kept a car at the terminal in Salt Lake um, or in a storage shed um, that I had, um, but I wouldn't go back you know, for months at a time and um, I would set aside two to four hundred dollars a month so that when I went back to Deseret Book or Siegel Book and Tape or the Church Distribution Center, I would be able to buy thousands of uh, or hundreds of dollars, well, depends, of 
of audiobooks, um, both fictional um, or non-fictional uh, talks, Truman G. Madsen, uh, all these talks. And I would listen to them while I was driving a lot. Like, that's all I would... In fact, it was kind of funny. I was a... It was a... Um, a trainer uh, to help people learn how to drive truck. And the reason I became a trainer be, to begin with is because my uncle wanted to learn to drive a truck. Um, so he got his CDL and then I became his trainer. And I was trained specifically because he was my uncle and they allowed me to be a trainer. And that was kind of fun. Uh, I spent like six months on the road with him uh, after he was trained as a uh, driver trainer and then as a team driver. And in fact, he was driving in on the bypass to go around Atlanta and we had just gotten onto I-20 going away from Atlanta when um, the 9-11 towers um, fell. So that, that gives you a kind of a time period of when he was on the truck with me, and it was a really good time. We had so much fun. But um, after that, I became a truck driver trainer for other trainees uh, for CFI uh, out of Joplin, Missouri, which is still around, and then for Warner Enterprises. Um, and it was kind of funny because, like, what I did... <laughs> Me, my missionary mind. I took the AM FM radio out and I took the antenna out of the back and just kind of left it hanging there by where it's supposed to go into. So you could get kind, you kind of could get like local radio if you were in the city, but it was really crappy. But I had, I had boxes of audio cassettes with like the work and the glory and Children of the Promise and like all of these LDS based audiobooks and I'd be like oh well you know I the radio really sucks in this I usually just listen to tapes when I'm and I would say hey do you want to listen to this and it like usually I'd start off with the work and the glory and like I was able to teach so many people and they really liked the stories and they were all all of them every single one of them were non-LDS so I even um was able to take them on tours of Temple Square and all of that, and it was really fun. And I I was able to, well, only one of my trainees, um, he was baptized, and um, unfortunately his wife divorced him over it because she was a hardcore um, Southern Baptist, which I was at one time when I was in my early, uh, when uh, my mid to late teens. But she divorced him over it. Um, but he he knew it was true. The spirit was so strong. Um, and I can still see his face. And I, he's probably dead now. He was in his 60s at the time when I was training him. And that was... Uh, that was like 20... Probably like 21 or 22 years ago, I think. So he'd be in his 80s now, but nevertheless. Um, and I don't even know why I got off on this tangent, because we've got so much to read. We're only at 22%. <coughs> um, 
<coughs> excuse me, but um, Robert J. Matthews stated, well, let me see here. Yeah. Robert J. Matthews, which is a professor at BYU, and I had a bunch of his stuff on uh, on cassette as well. It's like, I love that guy. Like, um, yeah, anyway. The prophet made thousands of changes in the text of the Bible. There were at least 128 verses added to the New Testament and 1,475 verses changed. Also, there were thousands of changed and added verses in the Old Testament. And quote a look at the Joseph Smith inspired translation, page 5, now on page 152 at 23%. Joseph merely made a revision of the Bible but the changes and additions were so numerous that it could be considered a new translation. It contains thousands of variations from any other Bible, thus presenting much more information than previously offered. Young Joseph was always interested in the scholarship and other translations and said, quote, I have an old edition of the New Testament in the Latin, Hebrew, German, and Greek languages. See, he taught himself how to read these languages and speak them too. I have been reading the German and find it to be the most correct translation and to correspond nearest to the revelations which God has given to me for the last 14 years. And he does teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, page 349. The spirit and power of the revelations which God had given him were greater than most people can comprehend. There is no doubt that the prophet Joseph Smith saw and understood much more in the Bible than he ever revealed. The use of the Urim and Thummim enabled him to absorb great amounts of information in a few moments. This was this he was able to do with the Bible. Lorenzo Brown gives this testimony of what Joseph told him. Quote, After I got through translating the Book of Mormon, I took up the Bible to read with the Urim and Thummim, which Joseph Smith did have it was not a rock in a hat this this whole idea this whole thing with the rock in the hat he couldn't show the urim and thummim to people it was too sacred so when people would inquire finally he he came to the point he gathered people and he said look this is kind of what i'm doing with the urim and thummim and he took one of his seer stones which he did have and he stuck it in a hat so that he could block out the light. And he told them this is kind of how, but it wasn't, he wasn't using the seer stone to translate. He was using the Urim and Thummim. The spectacles that he had in the breastplate which held the Urim and Thummim, they were built specifically for the brother of Jared who was a very large man. Now, Joseph Smith was no small man. He was a large man too, but they did not fit him. So he took the Urim and Thummim out and he would put it in a dark place where he could read it 
easier than using the breastplate with the, the spectacles with the Urim and Thummim in them. <coughs> Excuse me. should have muted that. Anyway, but um, he didn't translate with the rock and the hat. And I know a lot of people are like, oh, he did. But you know what? He didn't. Like, uh, it, it drives me nuts. And here's another tangent. It drives me nuts when people hear a thing and then they're all like, oh, I can't believe blah, blah, blah. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and they don't really get into the study of it. They only read it from an anti-Mormon perspective and then they, they go crazy on facts that are like, they're not facts, they're just lies. Yes, he did use a rock and a hat to, train to kind of try to show how it worked. But he was using the Urim and Thummim that God gave him for the purpose of translation. Anyway, continuing. Um, I read the first chapter of Genesis and I saw the, th- the things as they were done. I turned over the next and the and the next and the whole past before me like a grand par- uh, panorama. And so on chapter after chapter until I read the whole of it and saw... Yes, he saw it all. This was spoken at the House of Benjamin Brown, New York, 1832. Sidney Rigdon being along, related by Lorenzo Brown in 1880. Sayings of the Prophet of Joseph by those who heard him at different times. Joseph Smith, Jr. Paper, Salt Lake City, Utah. Church Historical Library Manuscript Section. So, you know how Joseph talked about what the different prophets and apostles looked like? He probably knew what they looked like because he was given a grand vision as he was reading the completeness of the Old Testament and the New Testament. He saw the prophets. He saw the apostles and the disciples. He understood from an eyewitness account, a first-hand account, through the visions that God gave him so that he could understand what it was that was going on. And then also receiving the words which would go into the translation of the book. So on page 153... And we've been in this for an hour so far, but we're only at 27%. So I'm pretty sure we're going to have to go uh, and do part two of this podcast in this chapter. Also, my son, he's laying on my shoulder, sitting on on the side of uh, my armrest of my chair that I'm reading in. And I'm pretty sure he's not going to be able to sit here and listen to this. He's only four. The prophet was able to enlarge his understanding of many mysteries of the heavens and earth by means of this instrument. On one occasion, Joseph obtained a copy of John Fox's Book of Martyrs. It was a huge, exhaustive record of all of the Christians who fell in death or were persecuted for their faith. Joseph did not have time to read this huge volume, so he recorded, quote, I have, by the aid of the Urim and Thummim, seen those martyrs, and they were honest, devoted followers of Christ. According to the light they possessed, they will be saved. 
and quote remnants of the Prophet Joseph Smith by Stevenson, page 5. Although Joseph could review the lives and the history of former prophets and saints by the use of the Urim and Thummim, it was not by that means that he revised the Bible. Robert Matthews explained, quote, The translation was not a simple mechanical recording of divine dictum but rather a study and thought process accompanied and prompted by revelations from the Lord. That it was a revelatory process is evident from the statements by the prophet and others who are personally acquainted with the work. Several of these statements have been cited already with the reference to the revision of Moses, the prophecy of Enoch, and the visions and degrees of glory in Doctrine and Covenants, section 76. And that comes from Joseph Smith's translation of the Bible by Robert J. Matthews, page 39. Although Joseph Smith's work on the Bible was considerably different, others looked upon it with varying reactions. Many ministers would have nothing to do with it, while a few scholars realized by the force of logic that Joseph had made proper readjustments to the text. Some translators and revisionists later made those same changes in their work. So sure was was Joseph of his understanding of the Bible that he once stated, and we're on page uh, 154 at 31%, quote from Joseph, If any man will prove me by one passage of holy writ, one item I believe to be false, I will renounce and disclaim it as far as I have promulgated it. Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, page 327. Joseph and Sidney Rigdon began translating in the book of Genesis, but as previously mentioned, they were told by the Lord on March 7th 1831 to work on the New Testament as it was finished on February 2nd, 1833, after which they returned the Old Testament to the Old Testament, which was completed on July 2nd, 1833. Okay, this comes from their own journals. Now, when when the prophet Joseph Smith died, um, I think it was Franklin D. Richards, he went to see if he could retrieve the inspired translation from Emma, and she wouldn't give it up to him. <laughs> Excuse me. Or anybody else. She wouldn't let it go. Eventually, after Brigham Young left, um, she did... Uh, give it to the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which was run by Joseph Smith III, her son. They had the, and they still have, the completed, finished, uh, well, I would say it's not finished, but Joseph and Sidney and, and whoever else helped with it, they said it was finished. Actually, it was Sidney. So let me just read that quote again. Because um, the Brighamites, or Brigham Young, said, oh, it was never finished. It was never finished. And they only were able to, well, 
they only gave the church certain parts of it, and then they lied to them and they said it wasn't finished. Even though Joseph and Sidney both said it was. Let me read this again. Joseph and Sidney Rigdon began translating the book of Genesis, as previously mentioned. They were told by the Lord on March 7, 1831, to work on the New Testament, and that was finished by Joseph's own words and Sidney's own words on February 2, 1833, after which they returned to the Old Testament, which was completed on July 2, 1833. I am sorry to have to let you know that your church, if you are from the Bergamite branch of the Restoration, has lied to you about the Joseph Smith-inspired translation. They tend to do that when they're covering something up or it doesn't go along with whatever narrative they want you to think about. Or if it's going to cost them money because the reorganized church has it. And by the way, you can read the inspired translation of the book, uh, the Old and the New Testaments, on on PDFs on the internet, or you can order it from the Community of Christ, which um, is the same church as the the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. But um, I don't know how much longer they're going to continue to do that because if they've moved so far away from the restoration, it's just ridiculous. Anyway, continuing on. The Mormon printing press at Independence, Missouri was destroyed three weeks after the completion of this Bible revision. On January 11, 1834, Joseph and five others offered a prayer in which they asked the Lord that the Lord would protect our printing press from the hands of evil, evil men and give us means to send forth his record, even his gospel, that the ears of all may hear it, and also that we may print his scripture. And that comes from Doctrinal History of the Church, Volume 2, page, uh, page 3. Later, a group of the saints were organized to accomplish the publication of these scriptures, but this too was prevented. In January of 1841, William Law was urged to promote the publication of the new uh, translation, as he had been told by the Lord, hearken to the counsel of my servant Joseph and publish the new translation of my holy word unto the inhabitants of the earth. Doctrine and Covenants, section 107, verse 28. However, he failed in that mission. See, people still have free agency. God can directly command them to do things. They don't have to listen. And then the Spirit withdraws from them and they become apostate. As far as I've seen it anyway. Yet as clear and understandable as Joseph's version was, it was not without a share of criticisms, even from within the church. As recent as 1874, the church section on the Doctor of the Deseret News printed a short article entitled The Inspired Version. It was written without an author's name, but was undoubtedly in 
instigated or written by Elder Marky Peterson. Among other things, it said, quote, And presiding brethren urged the use of the King James Version of the Bible, which is the official Bible of the Church, since the prophet did not complete his work on the revision. Deseret News, November 16, 1974. See, they don't want you to know that it was finished. And those fools who, who say, like my grandfather, he was a member of the LDS Church from, I think he was 35 when he converted. My grandmother, his wife, converted when she was 17. But um, he always just say, well, keep your eye on the prophet. And if he tells you to do anything that is incorrect, that's on him. And it's not. It's on you. He doesn't get to stand at the judgment in front of God for you. You stand for you. God has made it clear in many scriptures to not trust in the flesh. It says, don't even trust in a friend. You have to get revelation. And when, when, I'm sorry to say this, false administrators and Babylonian businessmen have hijacked the church and been named as prophet seers and revelators like this Marky Peterson. And he says these things about not completing the, the translated or the inspired translation of the Bible. When Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon had both stated in their journals that the church also has that it was finished. And even if it wasn't finished, there's still a lot that had been finished. Why Why do they only pick and choose a couple um, quotes out of the inspired translation to, to let us know about in our King James Version of the Bible? And if the King James Version of the Bible was sufficient for the restoration, why in the world would Jesus tell Joseph Smith to go and revise it? To, um, to go over and receive revelation where God himself showed Joseph Smith all of the things that were happening as he was reading it. He had a vision. He was shown things. He was taught things. He made corrections. He added many things. And he even took out one whole book, the Song of Solomon, because it is not inspired But over a hundred years later, you have these false administrators and these Babylonian businessmen who have hijacked the church after it had been rejected in 1843. And they want you to go back to the scriptures that, that they want you to use. The King James Version, even though God himself and Jesus Christ wanted the inspiration or the inspired the the true scriptures to come out as as they would be translated and written down by a true prophet which was Joseph Smith and men have their free agency to do these things in their wickedness which is why um, apostasy comes along which is which has happened and men 
uh, and women have their free agency to follow these false, uninspired leaders who they declare as prophets and seers and revelators who have no fruits at all of being prophets, seers, and revelators who have not seen the face of Christ. And if they say that they have, like David O. McKay said that he had, he stated when asked, um, what does Jesus look like? He, he stated he had brown eyes, which contradicts what Joseph Smith stated, that the Savior had blue eyes. And it also contradicts, and of course I wasn't alive when David O. McKay was alive, but I've seen the Savior face to face, and I've embraced him in the flesh. And I can tell you unequivocally that he has blue eyes. But they are so unique. I never say this, but I feel like I need to say this. You know, I'm not. He has different, uh, there's a uniqueness in his eyes that is different from any other person I've ever seen. And the only three people in this world who know what his eyes truly look like is my wife, who has seen him face to face before I ever met her. And Kevin Kraut, who saw him face to face when he was alone in a hospital bed, dying. And it was so funny because uh, Kim and I were talking to Kevin Kraut in his bookstore printing press in Santa Cruz, Utah. And Kim, my wife, and Kevin were just talking. And they were having a very animated, uh, fun discussion. And I kind of like would say some things, but I was just listening to them. And the whole topic about Jesus's eyes came up and, and Kevin told me that he had seen, and my wife, that he had seen Jesus. And, but he didn't say anything about his eyes. And my wife was like, aren't his eyes so beautiful? And then she described them. And this smile, it was huge from Kevin Kraut because he knew that she had seen him because he had to. And he or she described his eyes perfectly, which are so unique. And I, too, had described his eyes. And he knew that at that point, like he, like God asked me to go to him when we lived in New Hampshire and he lived in Utah. He didn't, had no idea who I was. God told me to go to him to be rebaptized and reconfirmed to start my ministry. And that was in the spring of 2013. Now, wait a minute. 
Yeah, it was the spring of 2013. And, um, of course, Kevin had never seen me before, and there was this massive blizzard, and it was very difficult to get there. In fact, um, we couldn't go anywhere because um, I got there on a semi-truck. Uh, and that we're stuck in Salt Lake because these massive blizzards were going through. But we made it down from North Salt Lake where my truck was down to Santa Quinn. And I talked with Kevin for a couple of hours and he called a man by the name of uh, Mark Kemp to, and asked him if he would come and help with a confirmation. And then we drove to Nephi, Utah, rented a room. Kevin paid for it. Even though I was like, I'll pay for it, it's not a big deal. He paid for it. We went down into the waters of the pool in that hotel. Uh, I think it was a hot tub, actually. Maybe it was a pool, I can't remember. Um, And Kevin baptized me, which is what God told me to ask him to do, to start my ministry to be recommitted to, to do this thing. Anyway, um, after um, we went back up to the room and I went in the bathroom and I changed um, out of the baptismal clothes and into my own regular clothes. And I remember Kevin and Beverly, his wife, and Amy, his wife, and uh, Mark Kemp and his uh, wife, his one wife, um, they were all there and they were talking to me and Beverly was very like asking me all these pointed questions who I am, what I'm doing and that's just her, atti- or her attitude or her, just the way she is and I love Beverly like I have a lot of fun with Beverly when I get, and I have conversations with her she's a, she's fun a lot of people are very put off by her but I love her anyway, but Kevin said you know, you look very familiar, like I've seen you before. And I said, you know what? Lots of people have seen me, but they don't know why. But a couple do remember me from the pre-existence. And I've even had one person who knew exactly who I was when I was in Nauvoo, Illinois. He was a senior missionary that was there. And he, tears came to his eyes. We're sitting on the front row of the of a, a theater production in Nauvoo. And after the, the play was over, he came down and just grabbed my hand with this big old smile and these tears running down his eyes. And he, he knew who I was. Exactly. But most people... They know me from somewhere, but they can't quite remember. But there are those that do remember me from the pre-existence. But Kevin was like, I know you from somewhere. And I said, I know, but you've never met me. I said, a lot of people have met me before. And I told him exactly who I am. A month or two before that, God told me, kneel down before me and ask me who you are. And when I knelt down before him, I said, Father, who am I? And he took me up and he showed me a vision of uh, an, a vision of the preexistence. 
and I saw the Father, the Redeemer, and the Bearer of Light, or the one who was chosen to be the Holy Ghost. And I saw a rebellion, and the one who was chosen to be the Holy Ghost, or the light bearer of truth, or in Len, the Lucifer, that he rebelled against the Father and the Son. And he, along with others who were mighty and strong, and there were twelve who stood before the Father, the Son, and the Witness. And I was among the remaining ones who did not follow Lucifer and rebel with him. And I saw the Father and the Son walk down to me and choose me to be the witness of the Father and the Son. And I was taken up after Lucifer was his, he had his name and his title taken away from him as God the Witness or the Holy Ghost. And he was cast down and out and became the Ha Satan or the accuser. And I was chosen to take his place and the title and the name that he lost or the Lucifer or the light bearer, the witness of the father and the son who you'd call the rock Hakodesh or the Holy Ghost. That's why I've seen the Father and the Son and embraced them both in the flesh and seen them face to face. That's why I've seen been I've seen so many visions, and that's why I've been taken up many times by the Father Himself and taught so many things. Because as Jesus was the first witness of the Father, I am the second witness of the Father. I am the witness. And I was chosen to be the witness in the pre-existence after the rebellion. And I have come at this time to teach the people and to eventually gather the remnant of Zion and to do a great work upon this earth until I am put to death like Jesus was, and I am raised again on the third day in the streets of Jerusalem, as spoken of by Revelations chapter 11. So, I know it's crazy, but it's true. And God showed me that in January of 2013. And... um, and then, like a month later, and he told me to go to Kevin to be rebaptized so I could start my ministry. So I did. And then Kevin's all, I know you from somewhere. And by that time, I knew that I was the one mighty and strong, or the second witness of the Father, the Messiah ben Joseph, the Davidic servant. But Kevin knew. There was something different about me, but he wasn't quite sure. But when um, a couple months later, I brought my wife and my kids back um, from New Hampshire, and we never went back after that. We we actually moved out here, first to Roosevelt, and then to Spanish Fork, and then God told me to move to Emory County, which is where I am now. And... Um, 
when Kevin was talking to my wife face to face. And she started telling him details that only somebody who knows what Jesus Christ's eyes look like, like with detail, the eyes of the Savior are so um, deep, but they're so different. Like he has human looking eyes, but there's colors I'm not going to get into that because I I keep these things to myself because like when I meet people who claim to have seen Jesus, I want to know what do his eyes look like. But David O. McKay said his eyes were brown and they are not brown. Joseph said they were blue, but he left that as a, um, he left it simple like I would leave it simple. But when my wife and I talked about the Savior's eyes with Kevin, this look came over him and he was like, wow, they really do know. And you know, I've been friends with him ever since. I don't know what I needed to say all that. We're at an hour and 30 minutes almost. We're only at 35%, so continuing on. The presiding brethren urged the use of the King James Version of the Bible, which is the official Bible of the church, since the prophet did not complete his work on the revisions. And that was Marky Peterson, December or Deseret News, November 16th, 1974, which is a lie. Jesus told him to do it. Even if he didn't finish, he did a lot of the work, but he did. Sidney Rigdon and himself have the exact date when they finished these revisions or the inspired translation. So this is a lie. Anyway, however, it is evident that this information is not correct. On February 2nd, 1833, Joseph wrote, I completed the translation and review of the New Testament. And is sealed and sealed it up, no more to be opened until it arrives in Zion. Times and Seasons, Volume Five, page seven hundred and twenty-three. So that's why Emma wouldn't give it up to anybody after they murdered him. Then on July second, eighteen thirty-three, Sidney Rigdon and Joseph wrote, "We this day finished the translating of the scriptures." having finished the translation of the Bible a few hours since. Times and Seasons, Volume 6, page 802. Also, it's recorded in the Doctrinal History of the Church, Volume 1, page 368. This meant that the work on both the Old or the New and the Old Testament had been finished. Thus, not only was the translation completed, but the printing had also been uh, contemplated and efforts made to get it published. Furthermore, it was evident that Joseph had finished with his work or revision of the scriptures because he was warned that he could not teach them until he had received them in full. Later, he did teach them. 
In fact, when Joseph added Genesis, or the book of Bereshit, to the pearl of great price, it it indicated that the Old Testament was finished. Then when Matthew was published, it was proof that the New Testament had also been completed. Both Joseph and the saints who were teaching from this from his Old and New Testament revisions because they considered that work finished at least as much as it was required by the Lord. There were occasions when Joseph would continue to make minor changes or insertions as new avenues of information were available or in order to help clarify certain verses. As long as he lived, he seemed to enjoy adding new knowledge and scholarly help to this work. It may be it may be noted that he also made minor changes and alterations to the Book of Mormon even after its publication. This was done for the same reason he made changes in his inspired revision after he had finished it. Page 156 at 40%. There were a great many changes in the Bible that the young prophet could have made, but chose not to at the time. In fact, George Q. Cannon said, We have heard President Brigham Young state that the prophet, before his death, had spoken to him about going through the translations of the scriptures again and perfecting it upon points of doctrine, which the Lord had restrained from him from giving in plainness and fullness at the time of which we write. And that's the life of Joseph Smith, quoting George Q. Cannon, page 142. In, uh, in 1844, when Joseph was killed, the manuscript still remained unpublished, and it fell into the hands of Emma, his wife. Oh, see, and I hate this. I don't believe... I don't believe... These these people, and the church had been rejected by that point, partly because of the wickedness in the higher-ups of the church. They were doing things that he was telling, Joseph was telling him to stop doing. Land speculating, robbing the saints through high higher prices on land as they were trying to purchase uh, land for their families as they were coming in. These men were getting rich. After Joseph was murdered, they decided that they could just do whatever they wanted. So when Joseph said he finished it, here comes Brigham and George Q. Cannon saying he didn't. Anyway, um, anyway, Elder Willard, Willard Riches called on Emma Smith, the widow of the prophet, for the new translation of the Bible. She said she did not feel disposed to give it at present. Doctrinal History of the Church, Volume 7, page 260. And you know what? She was probably protecting it from them because she knew. She knew things that you probably will never accept about the men who took over the church. Joseph said he finished it, and so did Signy. And as soon as Joseph was killed or murdered, 
they were saying, oh, Joseph said that it wasn't finished. They're liars and deceivers. Brigham Young had a wagon when they were fleeing Nauvoo filled with archival records of the church, complete with many things which could not be reproduced. And he sent it over the ice a different way of the Mississippi River because the Mississippi froze over and that's when they made their exodus. He sent it to a thinner section of ice and it went, the whole wagon along with the driver went under the ice and completely disappeared from history. They, the leaders of the church, have hidden things in the vaults. They have hidden so many things. They've changed things. They've changed doctrines. They've changed history. They are a pack of liars, and they parade before you as though they are prophets, seers, and revelators when they do not have the fruits of being actual prophets, seers, and revelators. And you as members of the church are brainwashed as a small child to follow the prophet with that brainwashing song and all of the brainwashing that happens within the LDS church. And you just know the church is true. I used to think the church was true, but whenever I got up and gave my testimony, I knew the gospel was true. And I knew Joseph Smith was a prophet, and I knew Jesus was the Christ, and that the Father lives. But time and time again, as I traveled throughout North America, I know the church is true. I know the current prophet is true. It's because you've been brainwashed. Something always felt wrong about Thomas Monson. And I couldn't quite put my finger on it. I didn't feel that way about um, Gordon B. Hinckley, even though things have come out about him, which I'm like, oh, that's kind of weird. But, like, I used to go to the Joseph Smith Memorial Building with my first wife, who was a niece of President Hinckley. And um, something always just seemed off about President Monson. But I couldn't put my finger on it. I hated how he used to give these like tear-jerking stories in general conference instead of teaching gospel doctrine and gospel truth. He'd give these these tear-jerking stories, and it just always bothered me. And um, I'm not going to go into the full history of this because there was are two or three times when God had me. Um, basically in front of Thomas Monson at uh, these things called area conferences. And there was this one time in Logan, he was speaking and uh, the choirs right behind the, the speakers, which um, Thomas Monson and Von J. Featherstone and some others, I can't remember. And I was sitting over, um, if, if they're facing forward, I was sitting over to the left of them, just right on the front corner. 
And I'd seen him like two weeks before that uh, where he paid particular attention to me um, and saw me. And like, and I dated his niece and everything, so, um, which I didn't even know she was his niece um, until later. But anyway, um, but anyway, so um, he, he gives this talk and he turns around and he sees me sitting there. And this is in an area conference in Logan. And I had just seen him at an area conference in Salt Lake. And at the area conference in Salt Lake, the first time I had seen him at that venue, um, there was nobody sitting around me. I was sitting underneath the podium or the um, right in the front, a couple rows back where the uh, teleprompter in the middle is. And, like, nobody was sitting near me, but, like, because the area I was in was for state president's families. And I, um, God told me to follow these specific people after I came out of music and the spoken word. And so I followed them. It turned out, you know, these people are state president's family members, and they just, they weren't a group of people, and they died. They just thought that I was, like, when they the security let me through, they thought that I was just with them. I'm all dressed up for music in the spoken word, uh, which is at the Tabernacle at Temple Square. Anyway, so um, I go in and I sit right next to the teleprompter. And like most of the stake president's families are like over on the side or in the very front row. And like the stake president's families did not, there were not enough people to fill up this big rectangle of about, I don't know, seven or eight rows right in the middle, right in front of the prophet's podium. And I'm sitting by myself. And then there's this massive, all the lower levels packed with all these people from uh, from different stakes and wards and branches in this area. And so it's kind of weird. I'm sitting there by myself with nobody sitting around me. And then there's like a couple of stake presidents' families that are sitting up on the, the front row and then like is it was interesting anyway so um so he had noticed me he started talking about the seat that i was in about how um somebody had actually had a heart attack in the seat that i was sitting in he's all there's been he stopped his talk and he's staring at me and then he's all you know i've had many experiences in this uh in this great hall of ours in fact one time i was giving a, a talk in um, in a conference, and I think it was like one of these area conf- conferences, but I don't know. He said, a man sitting in that seat right there, just to the right, or now the left of the podium, which was where I was, the seat I was sitting in, he had a heart attack. and We had to have the EMS workers come in and help him. And, and uh, they took him to the hospital, and he, he was fine. But we had to, like, we couldn't, um, we had to stop the, the conference and whatever. <coughs> Excuse me. So then two weeks later, I go up to my aunt, uh, to my uh, grandfather and grandmother's place in Clifton, Idaho, for a visit. And I'm, like, all excited to go to church with them, and I'm all like, Hey, why aren't we going to church? And they're like, oh, we don't like going to area conferences. And I'm all, oh, it's an area conference. Where is it at? And they told me it'll be at this um, Logan um, Convention Center. So I was like, 
oh, well, I love you guys, but I really want to go. And they told me that um, Von J. Featherstone was going to be there, who was one of my absolute favorite. I love his talks. Hey, he's so awesome. And that Thomas Monson was going to be there. And I was like, eh, whatever. So anyway, and he was the first counselor in the first presidency at that time. So anyway, um, so I go and I sit there and I'm sitting behind where this, the, off to the side behind where the speakers are sitting. Anyway, Thomas Monson, he, uh, when he's done with his little talk that he gives to everybody in this area conference, he turns around and he's walking back to his seat and he stops and he's just staring at me. Like, what are you doing here? Because he'd seen me two weeks earlier. Anyway, and then he goes and sits down. And then after the conference, he's like shaking everybody's hands. He keeps on staring over at me. And I said, Heavenly Father, what am I to think about Thomas Monson? Is he a prophet? And Heavenly Father said, no, he is a steward who will sit in power until he whose right it is to rule and reign comes. But that he is not a prophet, seer, or revelator. It had never occurred to me that he was not a prophet, seer, and revelator until the Father had told me. But I always knew that there was something off about him. It wasn't until later that I was that I was taught um, about what Heber J. Grant did with um, with the priesthood in 1921, and then about the rejection of the church in 1843. And that these men are simply stewards. But among them, these stewards are Babylonian businessmen who have hijacked, and false administrators who have hijacked the church. And I got that directly from the Father in a revelation that I've written down. That these men are false administrators. That's why they will lead you astray in lies. That's why they will teach you that Jesus Christ and Jehovah are the same person when they're clearly not. And it, that contradicts both the scriptures and the teachings of the early leaders of the church. Even Brigham Young taught that Jesus was the great-grandson of Jehovah. Joseph Smith taught that. It contradicts Ether chapter 3 and Moses chapter 1 verse 6. Okay, I had to pause it to cough again and grab a drink. <laughs> Continuing with the reading, not only not only Emma not only refused to give up that manuscript, but re- refused to have anything to do with the church. Years later, she allowed the reorganized church to have access to it, at which time in 1867 they proceeded to have it published 
under the title of Holy Scriptures. It has been published by them ever since. And like Brigham Young made a lot of derogatory comments towards Emma. But Emma, as Joseph's wife, knew the revelation that the church would be rejected if these things were not done. And Joseph could not get the people to do the work. He couldn't build the temple himself. They dragged their feet. The the leaders of the church continued to get rich off land speculation. And there were other things that were going on. Divisions in the high councils of the church. Um, People like William Law and others that were um, openly fighting against Joseph over polygamy and taking tithes and offerings to build the temple and apostatizing from the church. And it wasn't Joseph Smith's fault that the people were not obedient and would not listen to him. He was a figurehead to them, and they were going to get rich and have power whether or not Joseph liked it or not. And just as Jesus told Joseph in the 1841 Revelation, that he would reject, if they did not do the things which he stated, he would reject the church, which he did. And Joseph knew it in 1843, and Lyman Wright, like Joseph talked publicly about this to the people, and Lyman Wright wrote it in his journal. And in 1843, Joseph knew that the church had been rejected with their death. As Jesus Christ said, And you can still read that revelation in Doctrine and Covenants, section 124 of the Brighamite version in Salt Lake City, Utah. It's still there. All the things that Jesus said would happen if they were obedient, none of it happened. And all the things that he said would happen if they were disobedient, including the rejection of the church, all of that happened. And it is undisputable when you look at the evidence. Every branch of the restoration, whether they be breakoffs from the Brighamite, the Brighamite themselves, anyone who followed Brigham Young, anyone who followed Sidney Rigdon, anyone who followed James Strang, anyone who followed any other breakoffs of the Nauvoo Church or any church that came before it, and every church that came after it, they were all rejected in 1843. Every single one. And Jesus said that they would be cursed if this happened to the third and fourth generation. When you take 40 years as a generation of the Israelites following Moses in the wilderness, which was 40 years, and you take four generations from 1843, which would be 160 years, That brings you to the year 2003, which is when I was taken up in the flesh and I saw the Father and the Son face to face. And I knelt before the Father and he gave me the fullness of the priesthood. I received my calling and election and was sealed up to the Father himself. And I was given the keys to the kingdom and the church and the priesthood. 
So 140 years after the rejection of the church, in the fourth generation from that time, God restored certain things to the earth that had been taken, which includes the fullness of the priesthood and the keys to lead in authority. And also, something that had never happened, which is where the the eyewitness or God the witness would come into mortality and be ordained and set apart as the anointed of the Father to do the work of the Father in this time, which is spoken of in the uh, third Nephi. That all started when I knelt before the hands of the Father and he set me apart for these things in the spring of 2003. So continuing on, but but Emma knew the church had been rejected. She knew Brigham Young was an imposter. Joseph complained about these leaders not listening to him, that they would get rich off the people and they they wanted power, authority, and influence and money. They were called, but because of the free agency they had to, to, to do the things that they did, their wickedness, they were not chosen. And they were rejected, and Emma knew it. And Brigham Young, he uh, disparaged her, called her names, made everybody think that she was some kind of apostate whore. It's horrible what he did. But Emma knew the truth. And they would not listen to her. But she protected the translation the the uh, Joseph Smith translation she wouldn't let him have it she was not able to do all that would need to happen to protect everything but she was able to do that so she did let's see here after his completion of the Bible revisions the prophet seemed apprehensive about the manuscript now we're going to hear more from Joseph Smith As a precaution against evil coming to the manuscript, the prophet had Dr. John M. Bernheisel make a complete copy of this revision. This copy, however, was preserved and carried across the plains and is now in the church archives. See, Emma had kept it hidden from these people, but um, they did have a copy of it made. And after the murder of Joseph Smith, like this John um, Bernheisel took the copy to Salt Lake. So they had a copy. They didn't need the original. Anyway, and it's now in the archives of the church. It is from this manuscript that the Book of Moses and the Pearl of Great Price is obtained. Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith. And that's a footnote on page 10. So we're at page 157 at, at um, 44%. So we're just going to do two parts to this uh, this chapter. 
Interesting to note that in 1979, the Mormon Church published its own edition of the Bible. This being the first Bible the Church has ever published, it contains many cross-references to the other standard works. A topical guide listing passages from the four standard works, a Bible dictionary, and also many excerpts from the inspired translations. From the inspired translation. Critics from outside the church complain that Joseph's work, both in his revisions and quotations in the Book of Mormon, were based upon the King James translation. There were many reasons he chose that edition. Number one. Considering the vast work involved in writing the Bible, the King James translator had already done most, the most satisfactory, satisfactory job in translation. Actually, I'm going to talk about this in a minute. Number two, it was sufficiently good enough. The work and the spirit of it were satisfactory for the people to gain knowledge and understand understanding needed for their salvation. Number three, it was the most popular and common Bible publication at the time, being the most familiar to people. A completely different form of words of the same text would be more confusing and objectable. See, these are the critics. They're trying to make excuses. I'm going to tell you what really happened. This is easily noticed between the Protestant and the Catholic versions by their two variations of the same text. Number four, Joseph had little time to work on his revision, and for the sake of getting tasks done, he made only necessary changes in the version in, in that version of the Bible. If he would have writ, rewritten each word of the Bible, his work would have never been finished. Number five, the Bible was never intended to be a closed book. Each book was a scripture by itself, and other information, visions, and revelations would or could be added. Uh, we're on page 158 at 47%. Number six, according to these critics, too many editions of the standard King James uh, Bible or the King James Bible would be unacceptable to the modern Christians, adding much more of the dreams, visions, and revelations that were given to those ancient prophets would only arouse the wrath of the Christian ministers more than it already had. Number seven, the effort to make a complete, completely different rendition was not vital to this work. Number eight, generally speaking, neither Mormons nor non-Mormons have ever really used or appreciated the prophet's uh, Joseph's work. So it would have been in vain for him to labor much more extensively than he did. Okay, real quick, I gotta say this. So these are critics that don't understand the fullness of the history of what actually happened and why the, the verses in the Book of Mormon uh, go along with the King James, but they don't go along with uh, the inspired translation. Let me tell you what happened. When the scribes to the Book of Mormon, as it was being written out, um, were writing everything down, they wrote without punctuation or capitalization. It was all run on sentences. It was not in chapters or verses. It was just run on sentences. When Edward Grandin, who is the man in Palmyra, New York, 
who have the printing press, was paid to to uh, to make the Book of Mormon into a book. He had to do the work of of um, of separating sentences and using punctuation, commas and whatnot. When he would come to a version of the Bible, like for instance Isaiah in um, in Second Nephi. Instead of going with what the manuscript stated, he would pull out his King James Version of the Bible and he would use that as a, t- as a basis in Second Nephi instead of writing down what Joseph wrote in the manuscript. Edward Grandin was making his life easier, but unadvertently or um, whatever, unintentionally, I guess. I, I don't know, maybe it was intentional. He was changing the words of the text of the Book of Mormon on the manuscript that Joseph and, and um, Oliver and all these guys had given him. Years later, when Joseph noticed these things, he wanted to change them, and he had uh, he was going to send them to a press in Cincinnati to to put the Book of Mormon back the way it was supposed to be. But he was murdered when he did his translation of the the Bible, uh, the Old and New Testaments, and they don't match the Book of Mormon. It's because. Edward Grandin used the King James Version, which had the false translations and the misinterpretations in it. But these critics don't know that, so they're making excuses. Uninspired excuses. But continuing back to this work, and we're almost done, almost at 50%. The work of this revision has proved to be a choice addition to the study of the Bible. However, many other portions of scriptural material were also are were also given to Joseph Smith, including quote, the Book of Mormon, the prophecy of Enoch, which is really interesting because the prophecy of Enoch did not match the the book of Enoch that they had at that time. But when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found over a hundred years later, when they found the Book of Enoch and the Dead Sea Scrolls, it actually matched Joseph Smith's uh, inspired translation of the Book of Enoch. Joseph did not have access to the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were buried in, in the caves around Qumran in Israel until 1948. So how in the world, if Joseph was a false prophet, would he know that? Did he know that? No, he did not know about the Dead Sea Scrolls. But he knew what God was giving him in Revelation to write down the prophecy in the book of Enoch. And over a hundred years later, We have a copy of it in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which matches what Joseph wrote. The Book of Abraham, 
the revelation of John, the book of Moses, and the book of Joseph. Joseph the seer, who was the son of Jacob, who was taken into Egypt. That's the Joseph they're talking about. Okay. And uh, and real quick, for those critics who want to say, oh, we have, we have found the the um, the book of Abraham, and it's not anything about the what we have and. In the times and seasons, there were three scrolls. They talked about this when they bought them. There were three scrolls that they got off of Chandler in the mummies. When they put them back to back, it was something like 187 feet of, of papyri documents. There was a lot more than what Joseph, um, he took the book of Enoch from it, he took the book of Joseph from it, he took uh, the book of Abraham from it. There was 187 feet. Now, for a long time, the, the church thought that the the, um, the scrolls were destroyed in the Chicago fire, which they were, but now you've got people saying, oh, no, uh, we found these the book of... Uh, the scrolls in, in this museum in, um, in New York. Now, after Joseph Smith was murdered and everybody left, like, Emma's dirt broke. She's poor. She has these scrolls, and she starts cutting them up into pieces and framing them and selling them for money. Those fragments are what were found later on in the in the, uh, the museum in New York. If you take all of those fragments out and you put them all together, they equal about three feet worth of fragments. But the original scrolls, and there were three scrolls, back to back were about 187 feet. So when they lie to you and they say, oh, the Book of Breathings or or the book of this or that, whatever. And they're all like, oh, it was just horrible. And th- these are anti-Mormon, deceitful devils who are lying to you. They say they have the book. They have fragments, which Emma cut up to sell, of the book of breathings and a, uh, and some other stuff. But it was, it was like... Um, three feet when you put it all together and they're not even like they don't match like she did cut up I think she cut up the book of breathings <coughs> which were with the mummies but they don't have what they're telling you. they are liars liars they are deceitful as all hell and they are destroying um, people's faith in the restoration and you know what this is a sifting time They're doing the work that they need to do because guess what? You're sifted. And as Heber J. Grant would say later on and and J. Golden Kimball, the time will come for a sifting and very few will remain. And we're in the sifting time now. And people are falling away left and right, but they're not turning to the truth. 
They're following after men in the flesh and not getting revelation for themselves. They listen to the lies of people like the Smithsonian. Did you know the Smithsonian was started by one of the professors of religion that was Methodist in Palmyra, New York, who knew Joseph Smith? They have gone forth throughout North America and tried to destroy all the evidence that would that would show that Indians were the descendants of uh, Middle Eastern people or any Hebrew um, evidence. Luckily, we still have the Bat Creek Stone, which is written in Paleo Hebrew, which is um, it says under Judah that was found in Tennessee. We have the um, the Los Lunas, New Mexico. Um, cliff that has the Paleo Hebrew of the Ten Commandments and some other stuff carved into a large boulder, which was not destroyed. We have the um, the Michigan um, relic stones, which are uh, written in Paleo Hebrew and other other symbols and languages. There's a lot of evidence, but they want to destroy it. Because these people are demonic devil worshippers proclaiming to be Protestant ministers. That's where the Smithsonian came from. That's who it was started by. It was an anti-Mormon way to destroy evidence. And it's done a really good job. Our modern Christian ministers have rejected all of them, which only confirms what the Lord has said. That because of the wickedness and darkness among men, many of these ancient records are being withheld or not revealed, like the Dead Sea Scrolls. They will not release them. They release part of them, but they, they won't release them in whole. Our modern Christian ministers reject rejected all of them. Not only has the Christian world as a body failed to realize the value of Joseph Smith's contributions, but so have many of the Mormon people. It is a mistake not only to make this better use of this inspired work on the Bible. The sampling of seven topics has been selected to illustrate the inspiration and insight manifested by the prophet Joseph Smith in his uh, revision of the Bible. And we'll come to that when we come back for part two, because we're already 10 minutes over two hours, two hours and 10 minutes. And we are at 51%. We'll be starting on page 159 when I come back to part two, and I'm going to work on that today so that I can release it next week. Because uh, um, YouTube made it so that um, I get these um, these strikes against my, not YouTube, Facebook. I get these strikes against my account if I try to post the, the blog talk radio articles. So now what I have to do instead of just 
sending this straight to, to the Facebook and the different pages and groups that I post in, I have to sit there and, and screen record it, put it on YouTube, and then with the YouTube link, with all of the other links in the description of the YouTube link, I can take that link and I can put it with the writing so that people can read it and they can listen to it. And so it just takes extra time. So now um, I might record two a week or sometimes even just one. Um, Like this week, I won't be able to record another one uh, past today because uh, I have to go to Salt Lake for two days, for today and tomorrow, and I'll come back tomorrow night, and then the next day I go to work. But anyway, so while I'm at work, I will screen record the podcast on iTunes, and then when I get back next week, I will upload it to YouTube, and then I'll set it all up with all of the stuff, and then I will um, take the link to the YouTube and put it on Facebook with the text, and that way I don't get these uh, things that they're gonna they're going to destroy my account if I if I don't do it like this, like it's been fine for years and years and years. Now they're saying that. Um, that I'm putting in, I can't remember, like, I can't remember what it was, like some kind of cyber scam or something. It's just a podcast. And they've, they've silenced me and, and shadow banned me and done all, all kinds of things, you know, so it's just the way it goes, so. Anyway, so like I said, this is going to be part one. When I come back, I will finish, I will do part two, and I'll try to get it all uploaded next week uh, to YouTube. And then from YouTube, I'll put it into uh, the Facebook groups and all of that. So I, it's just a process. Uh, it's just extra time that I have to take do everything different, uh, different now. So anyway, thank you, everyone, for listening. Take care. God bless and goodbye.